This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. But uh, what's, what's great about the world we live in is we're actually living in the future, right? If I told you 20 years ago that you, your doctor could give you a drug that might slow your aging, you'd say, yeah, right. But it's here right now. Well, well so I'm going to ask like a couple of dumb questions. First off, do you have like billionaires calling you every day and saying, look, I'm, I'm 80 years old. I finally made my billion, but I want to enjoy it. I'm about to die and I just made the billion. Just start injecting me today. <laughs> not, as, not as many as you might think. Um, but, but there's only so many billionaires, so I would say like 10 a year. <laughs> no, no, nothing like that. What I think is, is going on is that most people don't believe it. It sounds too good to be true. And I'm hoping with the book and, and with the papers we've published and my field, which is now at the forefront of biology, that not just they, but the world realizes that this is, this is here, this is coming yeah. uh, and it's doable. And again, I think the great thing in the book too, you explain all these technologies, you really identify the several factors involved in aging and how each one could be potentially corrected. But I think what was exciting for me was that it doesn't matter that I'm not a baby, <laughs> that I'm you know over 50 and could potentially start thinking about these things as long as I stay healthy now so that I'm alive as the technologies develop. Right. I didn't realize you were over 50. Yeah. Well, I have a good biological age, perhaps. <laughs> Fantastic. We'll, we'll have to measure you. Yeah. I am so happy to have David Sinclair, author of the book, Lifespan, The Revolutionary Science of Why We Age and Why We Don't Have to. Again, the book's Lifespan. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. So I'll just, by way of intro, you're, you work at Harvard Medical School. You've worked all over the place. You've started a bunch of companies. We'll, we'll talk about that in, in the longevity and anti-aging space. This book, Lifespan, you kind of review uh, kind of your lifetime of research in the anti-aging space, which means basically you've covered just about every technique, strategy, science, molecule involved in anti-aging. It's almost like I would say this is like right now the Bible for longevity and anti-aging. I can't think of anything that is more comprehensive, right, and then easy to understand way. Some of the science is hard for me to keep track of the names of all the different enzymes and so on, but it's easy to read this at a low level or at a higher level, so it's, it's good both ways. And you give practical advice, plus you describe what you do. So welcome to the show again. Oh, that's great. Thank you. And... uh Here's how I want to structure this. I know what's on everyone's mind is that uh, essentially the basics, how can I live longer? What should I start doing now? Is it too late? When is it too late? When is it too early? And then the second thing is I'm going to have dumb questions that you don't answer in here, uh, maybe because it's too simplistic. And then I want to find out what you personally do. And then you've had an incredible entrepreneurial life uh, involving you know longevity, anti-aging, biotech. Maybe we can get into that and see if someone will explore the idea if someone is not a, you know, experienced researcher like you, if there's any way uh, as an entrepreneur to, to get involved in this space because it's such a fascinating area and we're kind of right at the frontier of research. So that sounds good. Yeah. Now, would you say like right now we're almost at a tipping point in anti-aging? Like, because, and the reason I ask, what, how I'll define tipping point. Up to now, I feel the even though the average lifespan has improved for humans, I think that's largely due to the fact that 
infant mortality has gone way down. So that's brought the average up. And we've eliminated, because of vaccines, we've eliminated things like, you know, basic flus killing you and measles killing you, mumps killing you. We have all sorts of new tech techniques and technologies around cancer, heart disease, strokes, Alzheimer's. So I feel like the cap on lifespan has not moved up, but that we've all moved closer to the cap because we've eliminated all many of the reasons why someone would die. Well, that's absolutely right. Uh, we've done everything we can and, and have succeeded mostly in getting rid of everything that kills us except one thing, aging. Right, and so you bring up the point in this book um, that, that aging should basically be recategorized as a disease. And then all these other things, like let's say Alzheimer's, heart disease, whatever, they're almost like symptoms of the aging disease. Well, they are. It, it, it's a bit of a mind-bending uh, thought, but if you, if you do take the time, and I think in, in the book I make a good case, that aging should be considered something that's a very common disease. Uh, though we don't typically, we're not raised to think that way. So it takes a while of, uh, of thought process. Let, let me start with one one idea. What is the difference between aging and a disease? Do you know? Well, maybe you've read the book, but most people don't know. Uh, I would say the traditional thing is that you wouldn't think of aging as having a cause other than the fact that the only cause, I think traditionally people think of a, the cause of aging is, is being born. Right. Well, you know, in the middle ages, we thought that cancer and dying from an infection were these you know, voodoo natural causes. And then we figured out, hey, there's actually a pretty easy solution. You wash your hands, you clean the water, you you can take a dose of radiation. Now that I think we have a really good handle on what's causing aging, we now can think of aging like we do those other diseases. But there's another statistic that I think will help um, listeners, uh, viewers who are still not convinced that aging should be a disease. Uh, the definition of aging is only aging because it happens to most people. If you go to the Merck Manual of Geriatrics, which I have on my shelf because I like to read it and remind myself. Just like bathroom reading, the Merck Manual of Geriatrics? Sure. How, how big Don't, is it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, the Bible for my field. The definition of a disease, let's start with that, is that if something deteriorates over time in your body and uh, reduces your function or your health, if it happens to less than 50% of people, we call that a disease. Okay, cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's, et cetera. If it happens to 51%, damn it, we call that aging. And that, that's an arbitrary cutoff. That, that's really interesting. So what, what, what might that mean other than aging? Like if 51% of people die of heart disease, for instance, like let's say, or cancer, let's say we eliminate heart disease and strokes with technology, you know, in, in the future, because uh, we're, we're getting pretty good at both those diseases. But cancer is a little more difficult. Uh, if 51% of people die of some form of cancer, would it stop being labeled as a disease? According to that manual, yes. Hmm. Yeah, um, and that's the way the FDA looks at things currently. Uh, but just because more people get it than not, I think that makes it even more important to address. The other thing about maximizing our average lifespan, um, we've done. we've got to the point where it's extremely difficult to push it further. There's only small gains to be had with the current approach to medicine which is treating cancer separately than how we treat heart disease from how we treat Alzheimer's. In fact, we do that very poorly. Right, right. So all of these things will kind of take us to the, the cap, the, the maximum lifespan, which let's, for the heck of it, call it 150, 115 years old or 120 years old. I think someone has lived documented to 117. Um, yes, and maybe 122. It's right. debated. And so by if we take this bottoms-up approach, which is, okay, let's 
try to treat heart disease. Let's so so the typical killers of of humans are heart disease, strokes, you know, cancers, Alzheimer's. If we kind of top bottom up try to eliminate yeah. all of those, then we're not going to extend the average lifespan, but we have greater chance of hitting the age of 100, for instance. Well, you'd be surprised how little effect it has curing cancer. We get about two and a half years on average. Yeah, and you and you mentioned with Alzheimer's, we get like 16 days yeah. <laughs> on average. Right. So all of these diseases are aging. That's the risk. If, if, if I were to smoke, I don't. Uh, my mother did. That increases your chance, her chance, of getting lung cancer by fivefold. And what do we do? We, we try to ban cigarettes. We put all sorts of taxes on them. How much does aging increase your risk of getting lung cancer? A thousandfold by the time you reach age 70. That's by far the main cause of cancer in the world. If we could forestall or reverse the actual aging process, we wouldn't get cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's until much later. And that's what I'm saying we need to do. So, so I mean, we'll, we'll, I mean you, you kind of divide... Uh, some of the things you mentioned between kind of natural cures and natural things to do to kind of increase your chances of of, of having a healthy life. And, and by the way, I like the word health span that you use, which is um, kind of a subset of lifespan, which is how many years do you have a healthy, high quality of life? And so some natural things you can do to kind of increase your your health span. And again, from a bottoms up approach, if you just do things like quit smoking, you know, exercise a little bit, sleep well. You don't mention much sleeping here, but uh, all of these things will bottoms up increase the health span. But again, probably not, or we know it won't uh, increase the um, cap on lifespan. Where do you think the cap on lifespan could be five, 10, 20 years from now? Because in the in the in your book, you have many ways of increasing that cap. And so I'm just curious if you had to pick a number. Where, where are you going in five years, 10 years, 15 years? And I know your goal is to at least live to 132, so you see the next century. Uh, right, though, just to correct uh, a misconception, I don't mind if I die. I'm not scared of dying. It's just I'd, I'd love to see where humanity goes. But I said it's a goal. I didn't say it was, uh, you right. know, a fear. Yeah, yeah, well, although some people are very scared of dying and that what motivates them. Uh, it's hard to put numbers on it. The reason is that the longer we live, the more technology we have access to. And it's going up exponentially. It's very hard to, to extrapolate. But let me try. Um, a, a kid born today will live into the 22nd century. And just in the last 10 years, the amount of progress we've made in understanding why we age and how to address that. In, in 80, 90, 100 years from now, it, I think that it'll be possible to reprogram the body and get cells to actually be younger, literally. So you just did like a two-step analysis. So someone born today they're going to live at least 80 years old just by the general in increase in lifespan that we've seen over the past 100 years. If we consider that, can continue that trend, you know, let's say someone born 50 years ago had an average uh, lifespan of 72 years. Now someone born today might have an li average lifespan of 80 plus years. But then you're saying kind of the, the second derivative of change due to technology has gone positive for the first time because now we have the technology to actually increase you know, lifespan for everybody. Right. So the longer you live, the longer you live. And that's true today, but it's going to change even more in the future and, and have a big jump up, I think, based on the technologies that are, I've written in the book. And I can see coming in part out of my lab and others. Um, but even if you just look at today, if you live for a year, you get another, I think it's a couple of months of life. So you, 
you really, your goal should be to exercise, to be, to have intermittent fasting so that you can have access to these technologies that are constantly coming online. Right. So, so I want to get to the natural stuff, but I actually, I'm really fascinated by the technology because, you know, essentially for the past 1000 years, there have been cures for aging and, and, you know, the quest for immortality is, is, you know, mythology is, is littered with it from thousands of years ago. Uh, you even mentioned in the, in the Bible, there's discussion of Methuselah and even how old, you know, all these other biblical figures are. So obviously it's been something that's been on our minds for, for thousands of years, but now this year, essentially, uh, at least as I read this book, I'm thinking like, gosh, this is, this is happening now. And, and we're kind of lucky to, to be here for it. And so, so I wanted to ask you some specifics uh, on the technology and then we'll get to the natural stuff. I don't want people to think that, that, that uh, the natural, you know, the natural stuff's great to be healthy and increase your chances, but then there's these technologies that actually change how we think about aging. And so, uh, and some of them are a little bit harder to understand than others, but you start off talking about, um, the relationship between calorie restriction, which is, you know, or intermittent fasting, you know, calorie restriction, basically eat less calories, eat significantly less calories for a certain amount of time. And you talk about the relationship between that and what you call NAD plus boosters. And so I want to start with that. And then we're going to go into your other technologies. Mm -hmm. uh, sure. Happy to. And, and this is the reason I wrote the book, because we are at a transformative time. And I think nobody understands any of these things. Like I had to really use my brain to, to figure this out as you were writing it. Right. It, it's as if a hundred years ago, you're interviewing the Wright brothers and you could have said to them, people have been trying to fly for the last 10,000 years and dying, falling off cliffs. No, no, no. We understand air pressure, wind velocity. We have engines. That's what I'm saying here for aging. But, but by the way, that's an interesting analogy because we, I don't understand how a plane flies and I probably never will, but that's fine. I just flew on a plane yesterday. So at some point, um, these drugs will just be available or these technologies will just be available, you know, somehow physician or science approved, and we don't necessarily have to understand how it works. But I do think what's interesting with each of these technologies you're about to talk about is that they are related to some natural process as opposed to sort of magic that fell from the sky. And I like how you make the connections between that. Exactly. All right. So the, you mentioned, uh, NAD, uh, you mentioned caloric restriction. Now I started out my career studying lowly yeast cells the same yeast you use for beer and bread. And what we discovered in the 1990s at MIT, and, and I have to give full credit to my professor and mentor, Lenny Garenti, we figured out why yeast age, um, and we can get to that in a minute. But what we also discovered was that they have protective genes that make them live longer when times are tough. And in my book and in my, my whole career, I've been saying that we need to stress the body, make it think that the environment uh, is adverse to, the, to survival, and turn on these longevity genes that provide the protection against disease and of aging. Now, a group of genes that I uh, worked on in those days uh, and still work on because they're in our bodies as well, have the name sirtuins. So, okay, so uh, I want to ask you about that, um, you know, the, the body must struggle and then essentially it kind of turns off the, the, the cells that are about thriving and multiplying um, and, and, and slows the body down so it can rejuvenate. And in which case, uh, the cells stop dividing as frequently and it kind of extends the lifespan. But I'm curious if, if the body's always in struggle and if it's turning off, it's kind of, um, you know, 
desire or energy to to thrive and and multiply and do all the sorts of things we can do is there a negative to that do we start to feel weaker or you know less like moving yeah you you'd think that and when i first started in this field caloric restriction was thought to work by slowing metabolism down um and nobody wants to live a life of a of a um of a kind of a a weak zombie but that's not what happens we've discovered that when you're hungry when you calorie restrict whether it's a, an animal or a human or a monkey uh, what happens is your metabolism actually is altered but speeds up. You get more energy. And those who have tried intermittent fasting and caloric restriction will vouch that you become more alert, you feel like you have more energy, and that's borne out in the biochemistry as well. So so why would that be? Because if you're if you're not eating, isn't your body gonna isn't your brain gonna tell the body, hey, we better preserve the fat we've got? Uh, uh, let's store it up, and won't that slow down metabolism? Well, it actually burns the fat, right? Um, at least for the first four weeks, you're going to be in in a state of burning fat. Uh, it's also going to be changing uh, your energy production, making more energy. And why is that? Why would the body burn more energy? The reason we think is that it thinks that it's it that the body's under threat, and it needs to get into the defensive mode. And so in, imagine a tribe who's running out of food uh, 50,000, 100,000 years ago on the plains of the Serengeti. They are not going to feel weak. They're under threat for survival. They need the energy to go walk 50 miles and find more food or water. And that's what we think is going on. You know, this actually makes me think of something kind of um, related, but it's sort of analogous. When I see people, and and you could attest to this too from your entrepreneurial background, which we'll talk about in a bit, when I see people who are running their businesses and it's super high stress, let's say they're in a super high stress period, maybe laws are changing, maybe business is going down, they're in such high stress that it seems like they, and this has happened to me, I don't get sick, but then as soon as I sell the company or things get better, I can, I've seen people have heart attacks like the day after they sell their company. I've seen, I, is it related to that? Like your body is under this extreme stress. So you're in this kind of fight or flight strengthening. And then when it's over, the body collapses. Is it similar to that kind of effect? Or am mm. I imagining that? Uh, no, I don't think you're imagining it, though I, I couldn't say I've seen a study that proves it. But I also, anecdotally, I can tell you the same is, is with me and I'm buying and selling companies. So uh, it's very stressful. Now, I just don't want don't want to confuse um, psychological stress with biological stress. They're, they're two different things, though they're connected. But when you're when you're under pressure and your body can feel that, you are activating these longevity genes, and you you probably do have a better immune system uh, as well as more energy. You're focused. Your brain needs more energy, and then when you relax, and uh, your body switches them off because the body doesn't keep these defenses on unless it has to. That's the key. If we sit around, we build up fat, we're watching TV all the time, um, we're always full or we're never really hungry, our body says, I'm not going to waste our energy of the body protecting us against cancer and heart disease and other things. You have to, you have to tell it to. And the way to tell it to is either change your lifestyle, get in the zone, like we talked about, with, with determination and stress. And then the third way are uh, the molecules like this NAD that you mentioned, where we can artificially mimic the benefits of fasting and exercise. Right. So, so right now, simply with, not simply, but with caloric uh, restriction and intermittent fasting, combined with enough exercise to tell the body, hey, 
we're in the real world, we're not just lying around. These are sort of natural ways to extend health span and get closer to that that current cap of what a lifespan might be for humans. But then if you kind of um, accelerate all of those processes with some of these technologies that you're about to talk about, that the, the theory is, and you've seen it in various studies, the theory is this will extend the lifespan, not just extend our ability to, to be healthy to our capped lifespan. You're saying the lifespan is not capped because we could take all of these natural things and really juice it up. Right, right. So even with a good good diet, uh, good exercise, you're still probably not going to make it past 110. That's pretty hard to get. That's one in, I think, a billion people or something like that. And, and, and in part, that's got to be due to genetics, like whatever is... It is. At some point, my epigenetics are going to tell my genes, okay, you need to start slowing down now. Right, right. And and those extremely long-lived people were lucky enough to be born with a beautiful set of uh, longevity genes. But the, for the rest of us, 99.99% of us, uh, we need we have a little bit more work to do. And while those centenarians, those people that lived 120 uh, or around that, often they have a terrible lifestyle. They smoke till they're 100 and that kind of thing. That doesn't mean we can do that because we're just we're average SMOs who got uh, regular human genes. So we can do our best to get to, let's say, it's 100 in a healthy way with everything that we know about lifestyle and exercise, diet. But if we're going to go beyond that, if we're going to bring everybody up, we need something radical. And there are we can talk more about them, but they fall into a few different buckets. One of them is... Uh, boosting the body's survival, which we've just mentioned, like NAD is a molecule that will do that. The second approach is to kill off the old bad cells, the zombie cells, we call those senescent cells. And then third way, which I think is really the game changer that will get us beyond anything we've dreamed uh, or we've talked about so far, uh, is reprogramming the body to be young again. Now that's new tech, we'll get to it, but that is something that goes way beyond anything that we've had until now. Yeah. So, so, and then you also um, slip a little bit more into the future in the book when you talk about gene editing. And then there's a few other technologies I want to ask you about. But let's start with the the NAD NAD plus. So, so as you were about to mention, you were studying sirtuins, these these proteins. Yeah. So sirtuins, think of them as the protective enzymes in the body that tell the body when times are tough, hungry, exercising. And there are seven of them in our bodies in each cell. And they do different things. But together, they protect us. Now, they do a lot of things. We're still figuring out what they do. But we know about 100 different things that they do to make us healthy. These seven sirtuins. Yes. And they're in every single cell in the body. Uh, the genes are. It uh, depends on the cell type. They turn them on in different ways. But yeah, pretty much most cells will have all seven turned on. And and what are some of the ways they they help the cell, help the body that yeah. we've discovered? Well, okay. So they the, are central regulators of uh, brain function. Uh, so if you boost them in the brain, you get a mouse that is resistant to Alzheimer's, but it also lives longer, which is pretty interesting. So these are longevity genes that also protect us against the ravages of, of aging. Another good example is that they control uh, the body's digestion of old proteins. So when we're hungry, where the body gets its energy besides fat is taking old proteins and throwing them in the, the recycling bin in the cell, it's called a lysosome, um, and that gets rid of those old proteins. So, why well, what are the old proteins like lying around? Well, the, why? Yeah, yeah. Why are there? Why do I have like a? a, a it's like an attic of protein. <laughs> yeah, because because it takes energy to to digest them and recycle them, and the body doesn't expend energy unless it has to. So, if I eat steak, 
like a year ago, will some of those proteins still be somewhere in my system? Some of them will be. Mm. And they accumulate, They especially the misfolded ones. They aggregate. We know Alzheimer's is caused by that, other diseases. But there's a, something called chaperone-mediated autophagy. Autophagy is just meaning auto-eating. And it takes a couple of days of fasting to really kick that in. Um, and we're learning now with uh, drugs that we're trying to develop that we could potentially do that with a pill. But the point is that our daily lives, because we're always essentially eating and snacking, that never really gets turned on in a big way. And so, so yeah, for instance, I have a friend who tried a three-day fast, just water, and on day three, he was telling me, um, it's like he, it's like he woke up. It's like suddenly he was on speed or something. He, he felt so much energy, and that's after three days of not or two and a half days of no eating. Yep, Th that's probably why. But Things at some change. point, though, you have to get tired or feel weak or something. Uh, well, I don't fast long enough to be able to tell you from experience. But those who do it, uh, Peter Tia, for example, uh, they say that they feel great once you get over the hunger. That's that's one side effect. But getting back to these sirtuins. They control these processes. So uh, without them, you don't live longer when you calorie restrict. You don't live longer when you boost NAD levels. And that is actually the biggest breakthrough up until this reprogramming stuff, which is now we understand why diet and exercise work so well. And now we can make drugs that take us way beyond what we can get from just being hungry. Right. So you're saying, so, so, so diet uh, and exercise activate these sirtuins to basically... Uh, protect the cells better. Right. And, and of course, my colleagues who are listening are screaming, David, there's more to life than sirtuins. And that's true. They fall into three main buckets of longevity genes. There are the sirtuins, which we work on. There's another one called AMP kinase, which regulates how much energy uh, or senses how much energy we're, we're taking in. And uh, we can talk about how to tweak that pharmacologically. And the third main one is called mTOR, or just T-O-R. And that responds to amino acids, how much meat you're eating, for example. And that is also a key regulator of how long animals and probably we live as well. But it, it seems, so, so we'll talk about all those. It seems Stratuins has been a central focus of your research, particularly when um, you started re researching, uh, and now this is almost considered like ancient research, but the effect resveratrol has on sirtuins, even though it, it sort of didn't become that u necessarily useful as a way to uh, sustain life, it was the first time you realized that a cell can affect the functioning of these sirtuins. Yeah, that was the, so you know, we're talking about 2003 to 2006, where we showed in yeast and then in uh, worms, flies, and then mice, that if you give a mouse that's eating an American Western diet, resveratrol, it was immune to the negative effects and would live just as long as a, as a lean, hungrier one. That was the first demonstration, A, that you could find a safe molecule that would prolong some aspect of lifespan and health. But I think more importantly, uh, it showed that you could mimic caloric restriction with, with a drug one day. Uh, and I, I still have a, I'm a big proponent of resveratrol. Or I'm a believer I'm still taking resveratrol every day. And Do you take it like in some pure form? Because again, okay. for instance, resveratrol is found in um, red wine, obviously. So everybody kind of uh, applauded around the world when this research was done. Uh, but but you have to have like a thousand glasses a day to have right. the effect. Right. So how do you get a more raw resveratrol experience? Well, I have a 44-gallon drum of resveratrol in my basement that's been a supply for a while. That's pharmaceutical grade. But there are, pe there are people selling resveratrol. I would just... 
if anyone's interested, uh, make sure the company is reputable and it's high high grade. Like, like I go to the drugstore right now and buy Reservatrol, but like, what's what's pharmaceutical grade? Well, for for us, it was ultra ultra pure, made under drug conditions in the lab. Um, because not everyone has access to that, but that you don't need to take that. Uh, I think resveratrol is one of the the few molecules that is fairly cheap, so there's no reason to doubt that what's in the product is what's in the product. So, like, if I if you take a typical tablet that's sold on the market, how many uh, equivalent glasses of wine is that? Well, the average glass of red wine has about a milligram, um, and I'm taking a, a, a teaspoonful in my yogurt every morning. That's close to a gram. So yeah, like you said, a thousand glasses of red wine every morning is what I'm doing. I see. So so, and then you you take it with the yogurt to help the body absorb it a little better. One hundred percent. You need to do that, and that's actually one of the 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 problems with some of the studies out there is that people didn't realize that resveratrol is just essentially like brick dust. It does not dissolve. So you need something like a yogurt or uh, some oil like that to to get it absorbed. Uh, that said, you know, I've had my cardiovascular system looked at. It's extremely healthy. So at the very least, it's not doing me any harm that I can see. It's very cheap. So that's the the risk-benefit ratio that I do in my head as to whether to, to do do it or not. Right. So then, but then now there's, there's newer uh, drugs, pills that are available, plus ones that are being researched. And that's, so, so Reservatrol maybe you could say is like the f- basic NAD plus booster and a- NAD being this, uh, molecule or chemical that, that boosts these sirtuins yeah. and well, so the sirtuins are enzymes and they, they're, they're doing a, a reasonably good job in our bodies, but not great. In fact, the older we get, the crappier they, they work. Is that because we weren't used to evolving them? Like they basically worked until we had kids and then the job was over. Exactly. Right. We are at the whim of, of nat- the lack of natural selection. So after age 40, we're lucky to stay alive much longer. And that's the problem. We go downhill. But that doesn't mean we can't artificially keep them active. And that resveratrol is one way. Uh, and it, it was controversial uh, as to how resveratrol was working. But the the jury is out now. Um, no, jury is in. The, the verdict is that resveratrol is, is binding to the enzyme, making it work directly. Um, and we actually have some experiments we haven't published, but we'll we'll nail that pretty pretty hard. But the, the other way of activating sirtuins is this NAD molecule. And the way to think of it is resveratrol is the accelerator pedal that makes the enzyme work faster to protect the cell, and NAD is the gas. And you need you need both to have optimal performance. And that's why I, I take an NAD booster molecule uh, and resveratrol, which I think is, uh, for me, probably the best way to keep my sirtuin enzymes hyperactive. Right, and, and basically, again, these are, it's not just that they're simulating uh, caloric restriction or intermittent fasting, but specifically they're uh, changing the way the body processes sugar, right? Which is why a lot of these drugs were, were originally used for diabetics. A lot of these technologies throughout the book actually were originally for diabetics. And and yeah, that, that's no coincidence. So blood sugar levels uh, associate uh, with long life. If you have low blood sugar levels, you probably will live longer than someone who has high blood sugar levels. It's, the blood sugar is... If you could do one thing, it's keep your blood sugar levels down. Now, that's hard for a lot of people, especially if they're not running or they're eating too much or they have a bad family history. Resveratrol, um, and even more so a drug called metformin, which is the first line of defense against type 2 diabetes in the world, they do uh, protect us against diabetes, but they also work to, we think, slow aspects of aging because glucose is so central. 
um, think of it this way, the, the, these defenders of the body, which I listed, uh, remember they're called sirtuins and ampicinase and tor, they regulate all sorts of anti-aging defenses. The, one of the main ones is make sure your sugar levels stay low because sugar is really dangerous for the body. So you, you take this NAD plus booster called NMN, correct? Yeah. So, so and that's freely available. That's over the counter. Metformin is prescription. Right. Um, In this country, yes. With, with, with M&M, with NMN, it's don't, Nancy don't Mary Nancy. Don't take M&Ms. Uh, yeah. That's not going to make you live <laughs> It's the opposite longer. of M&Ms. Yeah. It's NMNs. Uh, you've had some incredible, or you've seen some incredible results, like uh, unbelievable results. With NMN, well, only in mice. We're still in the process of doing human clinical trials. They're about two years old now. Um, so far, things look promising, but nothing to report yet. But in the mice, uh, labs around the world have used NMN and other what we call NAD booster molecules. These are precursors to NAD. They're not NAD itself. Uh, some of the effects uh, that we've published are protection from radiation uh, and increased endurance in old mice. Others have shown increased, uh, slight increase in longevity, not a lot, by just a, a few percent, uh, but protection against heart disease, heart attacks, even Alzheimer's. And so a lot of stuff happens in mice that doesn't translate to people, which how, is- How much of our genes do we share with mice? 95. So, so and, and let me just, because I'm, you know, naive at this. So if we share 95% of our genes with, with mice, does that mean when you're studying- uh, 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 the effects of these medicines on a mouse genome, if it's the part of the genome that we share, the belief is we sh it should have the same effect on our genome. Uh, well, it's more than just the genome. We're, we're built differently. We're bigger, um, different metabolism, different lifestyle. But uh, yeah, it's basically the, the closer you are genetically, the better the model. Um, so obviously, you know, the higher you go up, the more ethics there is to deal with. What's interesting about aging is that these molecules, resveratrol, uh, NAD boosters, um, these other things, metformin, they work on organisms ranging from flies and worms and even yeast cells in some cases, all the way up to rodents. You can't say that about an Alzheimer's drug or a cancer drug. For a start, these organisms often don't get cancer. So what I'm trying to say is that this new understanding of aging, it's not specific to humans. It's across all life, even trees and fungi. Fung fungi, some people call it. That means that if we can crack this in all these organisms, aging might be easier to treat and one day cure than something like cancer. Right. So let me let me try to understand slash explain this. So let, let's let's take cancer for instance. Cancer, there's no there's no such disease as just cancer. There's right. lung cancer, breast cancer, leukemia, brain cancer, and and each of these cancers is a different type of mutation, different types of tumors, or if it's leukemia, it's spread throughout the blood. So it's completely different treatments. They're, it's really kind of a basket of diseases where you're saying, if we could identify what are the one or two traits of aging and we treat that, that might be a better way to handle this huge umbrella that happens as a result of aging. And so, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just trying to understand for myself. A lot of the theory of aging is that um, as we get older, our cells keep dividing. There's only so many divisions they're allowed to do before these the these things called telomeres start, start shrinking. And then if they shrink too much, I don't know, they can't divide anymore. So that's that you've listed one of the eight or nine hallmarks of aging. And 
in about 10 years ago, we scientists who study this, we declared victory. We, we put out papers that said, these are the eight or nine things we all agree cause aging. And the field got a great boost. Everyone felt good. We had this roadmap. If we could just slow each of those eight or nine hallmarks, we would live a lot longer. But here's the catch. Nobody figured out why those hallmarks happen in the first place. Is there a unifying process that makes them all happen? And that's what I've put in the book, my view on what the ultimate upstream cause of why we age, uh, the causes all of those. So, so, okay, so, so with all these different technologies, are we trying to treat different of these nine? Or, I mean, a lot of it seems to be related to uh, their sirtuins, and then we'll get into kind of the cellular uh, programming. But uh, the biggest focus, at least in the beginning of the book, seems to be on you know mimicking, but at an accelerated level, this uh, what happens when people do caloric restriction and or eat less sugar or whatever. Right. So the 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 reason it's going to be simpler to treat aging than cancer, I believe. Uh, first of all, cancer is hundreds of different diseases. Aging is, I think, one single main cause, which we can target. We're really lucky that we have these longevity genes, uh, like the sirtuins, that we can uh, go in, reach into the cell and change them and tweak them. And they take care of the rest. They've evolved to address those eight hallmarks or nine hallmarks of aging. We don't even need to know how they work. I mean, it's nice to know, but they take care of us on a daily basis. And that's why addressing those eight or nine different aspects of aging is a lot simpler than often people realize. Now, some of these technologies, it seems, you, it almost seems like there's a sweet spot of age where you should start them. Like if you start them too young, you might be um, like, like, like we haven't yet talked about um, the, the zombie cells, the dead cells that when you're older, when you're young, they could be good for you because they're blocking, they're dead. So when cancer tries to knock on their doors, they say, hey, get away, we're already dead. But uh, they they emit these small inflammatory signals throughout the body that when we're young, we can handle it. When we're older, we can't. So you, you want to keep them when you're younger, but you want to get rid of them when we're older. So some of the technologies that we're going to talk about, get rid of them, but maybe you have to be careful you don't get rid of them too soon. Yeah, that's right. And we uh, scientists call this effect antagonistic pleiotropy, which means that things that are good for you when you're young might actually come back to bite you when you're older. And, and that's that's true for those senescent zombie cells. Um, so what, I, I don't think it's a good idea for very young people to, to be trying to extend their lifespan yet. Um, I think in part because we really don't know the side effects of some of these these molecules. Right, like, 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 for instance, you, you take metformin and you mentioned metformin, which is prescription. I mean... There are side effects to that. Like, do you ever get, uh, you know, do you ever think like, okay, if I'm taking this every day for life, is this gonna, is this gonna remove the body's need to create certain molecules because I'm feeding it, met, you know, metformin or even these NAD plus boosters? Is the body gonna say, oh, I no longer need to produce NAD naturally? Uh, my my guy here is taking, is taking all this extra NAD boosting, so I don't have to do it myself. Right. Uh, so, so one thing I hope everybody who knows me uh, or reads the book understands is uh, I don't take a lot of risks. Uh, when I start taking a molecule, you can bet that I've done a lot of research with my colleagues on this. And in the case of the NAD boosters and metformin, we've given them to mice for many years. And I know that this concern that you have is unfounded. 
before I'm going to start taking it, uh, in, including safety studies that I'm aware of sometimes years before the public is aware of them. Um, in, in the book, I actually, I, I broke with a rule of a lot of scientists, which is I'm putting stuff out that some of it isn't even public knowledge yet. Well, um, and you also mentioned um, something like a third of your colleagues also take metformin. That's true. So metformin is, is an interesting drug in that it's, it's been taken for over 30 years by many millions of people. We have a lot of safety data. It's not risk-free, but the biggest side effect that people get, myself included, is a, an ups, upset stomach feeling, which I actually find helpful because then I don't feel like eating. I think the risk is really low for me. It's a personal choice. I never tell anybody what they should do with their lives, but I'm transparent about what I do because I believe in honesty. Metformin, um, what's important about metformin is, first of all, I collaborated with a, a guy at NIH, Rafael de Cabo, and those mice that were fed metformin for the latter half of their life were protected against many different diseases and they lived longer. Now, some people argue that was just uh, because they were thinner and that might be true. Uh, but what we also um, have shown is that metformin is in humans seemingly associated with not just less diabetes, but protection of those diabetics against cancer, heart disease, and frailty in tens of thousands of patients. I didn't know that. Uh, so so uh, in the tests that have been done, uh, I guess they're done on uh, mice that have been bred to be tested. Have you, do you take ever take mice from the wild and, you know? Yeah, we should. Uh, there's limited amounts of funding. We're always scrapping, scraping by in, in research. But that's what you should do. You should try many different mice. You should be trying other organisms. Uh, I'm working on treating dogs because uh, we don't want to leave them behind with this this technology. But yeah, um, black six mice is what we call them. It's a typical black rodent in the lab. These are inbred lines though they're not as closely related as you might think. We used to think they're all identical, they're not. But other labs, not mine because I don't have limited funds, use a variety of different mice. Uh, take a, an orange one and a black one, breed them together, get a mix of offspring and test the molecules on those. And when it works in those, you probably have a better idea that it's going to work in humans than if you just test one type so, of mouse. So, so, so far we've covered, you, you take NMN, which is a, uh, uh, you know, NAD plus booster, yep. which helps the sirtuins, sirtuins, which which mimic kind of an accelerated uh, uh, how the body reacts to calorie restriction and so on. And the metformin also, uh, just from what I was reading, you 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 take one gram. It seems like when they um, prescribe it to diabetics, often they um, prescribe two grams. So you're taking kind of half that because you don't have diabetes, I'm presuming. Uh, uh, and with the NMN, is there? Do you ever talk brand? You don't talk brand in the book, so you no. just take something that is generic NMN, right? Right, and has has been tested in animals. So, um, and then the third is resveratrol. That's my that's my triple combo. Resveratrol, and and you also mentioned your your dad. How old's your dad? Eighty. Your dad is on the same um, kind of uh, what do you call it? the same uh, routine as you, and he's. I don't know, skydiving or whatever, mountain hiking. <laughs> right, we just got back from Uganda. We were up in the, the jungles with the, the gorillas. And, uh, you know, that it's not a clinical trial. I'm a Harvard Medical School professor, right? I'm not going to say this is proof of anything. But it is heartwarming uh, to see an 80-year-old hiking up the jungle, well, the, the rainforests of Uganda with his five grandkids. That's what life should be like. That's what life is about. And uh, if I can contribute to more people living a life like that, and beyond, um, you know, that's that would be a life well lived, I think. And you see uh, brain function also 
Uh, oh, he's super sharp. In my my father, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, my father. If 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 you didn't, um, I mean, he still has gray hair. He's not looking thirty, but everything else about him speaks thirty year old. He doesn't walk like an old person. He doesn't think like an old person. He doesn't have the pessimism of an old person. He is, for all intents and purposes, a thirty year old running around the world having a great time. And and so just just to finish your your personal routine before we move on to the other technology, you also take. Um, vitamin D D three or vitamin vitamin B three vitamin D yep. vitamin K something K two. Uh, so what? And then and then eighty three grams of aspirin. So what what are what are all those? What are they all doing? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, the the K two is uh, keeping calcium out of my arteries, hopefully, and uh, putting it in the bones, which is what we need. Uh, and do you find the intake of vitamins actually the body absorbs them? Uh, well, I, I don't test myself that much, right? Mostly it's, I'm reading a lot of papers every day to know what, what is true. And there are a lot of, not so much vitamins, but, um, uh, plant molecules that are insoluble like resveratrol, where if you take a horse pill of a lot of different things, most of it is either, uh, comes out the hole at the end, uh, or the other hole at the other end. Um, and so it's a, it's, uh, it's fairly expensive, uh, what people do, but what I, th I think people should do is consider taking uh, these vitamins and these uh, other supplements with something that makes them more soluble. Like what? Like how do you how do you take it? Um, so I, I take all of th these things that you mentioned um, with food. I, I think food is a great way to get things absorbed and dissolved. Uh, and so I have a, a morning where I take a little bit of yogurt and I, I and a coffee. Take those, and then at night. After I've had dinner, I take the rest. But you'll buy like the vitamin D in the store. It's a, it's like a tablet or or a pill or a capsule. Yeah. And and your 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 argument is that if you just take it straight, you might end up just crapping it out later. But if you take it with food, because the body is kind of um, goes hyperactive in terms of digesting the food, it's going to also digest and absorb the the vitamins. That's right. Now there are some very soluble. Vitamin D is not a concern, but uh, some of these other ones, yes. Um, why don't they? Why don't they give those vitamins as like a fluid or as powder? They should, and some companies are now starting to do that. Like, should I, if I get like a a vitamin K tablet, like a Flintstones vitamin K tablet, should I like turn it into a powder, like smash it up? Uh, so vitamin K, I don't think is a problem either. Uh, again, it's these it's these um, other supplements that you get. Typically, plant molecules aren't very soluble. Um, each is case by case, right? I I don't have um unless you you read the book, I don't have at the tips of my fingers, which ones are as soluble as others. Um, but what I, what I like is that, uh, first of all, I had the time to put all of this down on paper so that now people can read it. If we run out of time and I can't remember things, it is in the book, what I do and why and the science behind it. And, and um, I've actually never had aspirin. So I understand it's a blood thinner um, and I guess there's some anti-inflammatory aspects to it. I don't really know. What, what do you what, right. what do you take the aspirin? Let's for? talk about aspirin. So, a aspirin it was thought to be uh, one of the best things you can do to prevent a heart attack. Now, more recent research in in a lot of people uh, has suggested, but not disproven, that aspirin is not as protective against heart disease unless you've already had a heart attack. All right, mm -hmm. and I looked at all the data uh, as much as I have time to read those papers, and I'm still convinced that a baby aspirin is worth the risk. Um, first of all, how much does it cost? It's probably 
fraction of one cent a day. That's not a problem. Is it going to hurt me? Well, there's some evidence that it can hurt the stomach over the long run. I take a coated tablet. Don't worry about that. And at best, it's going to prevent me from having inflammation in my cardiovascular system and have plaque buildup and lead, leading to a heart attack. And so I, I, that's one of those things where I'm not sure if it's going to work. Um, people say yes, people say no, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that it's not wasting my money too much and that it's not harming me. So, so, so that's more or less kind of your, your, your daily routine and, and supplements and, and medicines you take. Now I'm curious about some of the other studies that you you and your students have done. Like, uh, in particular, I was intrigued by the chapter I want you to call the, the Yamanaka factors. And there's a lot of science in there. Maybe you could ex explain that a little more because the results on that sounded amazing. Like you're actually reversing the aging process with those. Yes. Uh, and so this gets to my central information theory of aging that we're not losing the genetic information of our cells. That's the old theory. My new theory is that we're losing what we call the epigenetic information, which is how those genes are wrapped up in three-dimensional space and which genes are accessible to the cell and which are not. So, and, so, and I'm sorry to interrupt. No, right. I just kind of want to explain real uh, quickly or, or understand. So we have all these genes. Our, our, the genes in our lungs do different things than the genes in our brain and the genes in our heart. And how do all these genes know what to do? There's something called the everybody's got their epigenetics, which is almost like the software for all the genes. And so every gene carries this epigenetic, this, this quote unquote software. And the genes say, well, what should I do? It plugs in the software and then the software says, okay, you're in the lung, you do this. And I don't really quite understand where the epigenetics are or how they kind of get this so-called software-like aspect, but that seems to be the way it works. Yeah. I couldn't have set up better myself. It's actually quite simple how the epigenome works. Uh, it's just a lot of people don't explain it simply enough. DNA is a strand of a chemical, and we read it as a one-dimensional code, just like a computer code. But the software is actually how that string of DNA is packaged. If you wrap it up like a tight ball or you spool it like a hose reel, then the cell won't be able to take its reading enzymes and have access to it. So that's how you switch a gene off. So if you're a brain cell, you don't want to live a gene switched on, so the cell in the brain switches off all of those and packages them tightly. But if you're a neuron, you want the nerve genes to come on from birth and stay on your whole life. And what the cell does is they it opens up the DNA, so it's flailing around as a big loop, and now the cell can easily get access and read that DNA and make proteins from those genes. And it's really almost too simple to... to, to um, for it, for it to not be well understood, it's compact chromatin, compact DNA is off, and open chromatin loops is on. Now, what I'm saying is that aging, large part of it is that that compaction and that looping gets messed up over time. Uh, it jiggles around. You don't have that packaging the way it, we have when we're born, and cells lose their identity so that a brain cell starts reading genes from the liver and vice versa. And why does it, why does it start to do that? Well, we don't fully know all the causes, but one of the main ones that we've figured out is a broken chromosome. When a cell gets a broken chromosome, it has to halt everything it's doing and go fix that. One of the ways it does it is that it, it changes the packaging of the chromosome. So when you've got a broken chromosome, you've got to unpack it, of course, so you can get access to the molecule. DNA isn't naked. It's often associated with protein. And that act of opening up the chromosome 
fixing it and trying to put it back together, that putting it back together and repackaging those loops and those spools, that's what gets messed up over time. Now, it doesn't happen instantly. You can have an x-ray or go out in the sun and you don't get old immediately, but it's cumulative, okay? We know that if you go in the sun every day of your life, you're going to look wrinkled and uh, an Australian will tell you what happens. Fortunately, I never leave my apartment basically except to walk 30 feet to do this podcast. (laughs) Well, this is why if I measured your skin's age, it probably would be relatively young. And we can do that. Knock on wood. Well, let's get to that clock because it's really interesting. The... What's just been discovered is that there's a clock in our bodies, which is the epigenetic information that tells the body where these loops are in the DNA. And you can read those quite accurately. And it's called DNA methylation, but don't worry about the name. Basically, it's where are those loops and where are those spool compactions? And we call this the Horvath clock, named after my friend Steve Horvath. But think of it as the epigenetic clock that tells you how old you are biologically Forget about candles on a birthday cake. This is really how old you are. So if I, James, if I took your blood today, I could, within a few days, tell you very precisely within less than 5% error how old you are and when you're going to die. So so just to mention, are you, this is, like if I go to, in, it's called Inside Tracker or Inside, what's the company that you started that? Uh, Inside Tracker, yeah. Does that help calculate the biological age or does it, because I... I know it tracks for you all of your, your relevant biomarkers. So they're looking at that, but they haven't started doing that yet. What they do is they look at molecules circulating in your bloodstream that are not the epigenome, but they were able to make somewhat of a prediction of your biological age. But this is even better, and this is coming online now, to combine a blood test that measures the chemicals and an epigenome test that measures your DNAs change over time, your epigenome. Yeah, and I, I think there was a recent study where they they only did, it was like uh, nine people, they studied a combination of, um, correct me if I'm wrong, NMM, uh, DHEA, and human growth hormone, and they claim that has reversed the biologically, the, the Horvath clock. Right, so a couple of, couple of uh, my colleagues, uh, Leahy and Horvath, were on that study. And uh, admittedly, it's only nine patients, um, so it's it's not a slam dunk. We don't know for sure if it's true. Uh, but I was talking with with Steve Horvath about this. We were in the Dead Sea, actually, when this came out, floating in the Dead Sea. That's a different story. But what what's interesting is that that was the first hint that we can turn back the biological clock, not just slow it down, but turn it back. That's pretty cool. Um, and I think in the future, when we adapt reprogramming methods, which we can talk about, I think we should, that you'll not just go back two years, but go back two decades. Right. So so let's talk about these Yamanaka factors because that's a different area now. Um, maybe describe that because it's pretty, it's a little pretty complicated. Yeah. Well, so let, let's just summarize where we are now. We figured out that there are longevity genes that, that are responsive to diet and exercise. They're great. We've tweaked those with molecules like NAD boosters and resveratrol. Uh, we know that there are these zombie cells which we can kill off. The big one, though, the really big one that would be a game changer in our lifetimes, allowing us to get way beyond what we naturally can get with good lifestyle, is what we call uh, partial cellular reprogramming. You mentioned Yamanaka factors. Yamanaka is a Japanese uh, fellow who in 2012 won the Nobel Prize for discovering that four four or more genes can be put into cells, old cells, and in the dish, make them 
stem cells. So artificial stem cell production. So, so uh, and I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm just going to, I'm only interrupting to kind of clarify and, and so that I understand and, and hopefully everybody else. So he was able to take um, kind of embryonic stem cells, meaning they had the potential to be anything at that point still and recreate them from um, first, I guess, mice and then later uh, adult humans or the research is to, to be able to recreate them from adult humans. Right. Right. So think of it this way. Uh, if I had the four Yamanaka factors with me, I, they're back in the lab, I could put them into one of your skin cells, create uh, a, a dish with all of your cells growing, reprogram them to be stem cells, what we call pluripotent stem cells, meaning they can turn into anything we want. And then by coaxing them with various chemicals, I could turn dish A into nerve cells, dish B into skin cells, uh, and beautiful young skin cells, uh, or may turn them into a, a new heart so 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 i always try to understand this like and i i don't want to because we, we still have a lot of ground to cover i don't want to spend too much time on this um when you say turn a stem cell into let's say a skin cell what do you do like inject it with other skin cells or how do you oh, do it's that easier than that my students do it all the time you just squirt in uh, a cocktail of a few chemicals and they respond how do you know what chemicals to put in well that's what scientists are figuring out have been figuring out since 2010. okay so like if if uh Okay, so 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 go so so go on. How would you take these stem cells then and make them useful for anti-aging? We don't, we don't. But Yamanaka gave us the clue as to how to reset the biological clock. What we know is that Yamanaka factors strip away the biological clock back to zero, which is not going to be useful for us. Otherwise, we'd turn ourselves into the biggest pile of stem cells or a tumor. But what we and a couple of other labs in the world have realized, if we just tweak the Yamanaka factors in the body, in a mouse, for example, if we turn on not all of the Yamanaka factors, but just a few of them, the safe ones, we can take a cell back in time, but not so much that it becomes a stem cell. So it's partial age reset of the body. So, okay, he he identified these four, whatever you call genes. it. Yamanaka genes. Factors. Yeah, So and that if you um, turn them back on, they, they, might, they might be lying dormant, across our body, but if you turn them back on, they sort of revitalize this biological age. Yeah, they, they take the age of the cell back. They, they strip off the, the bad epigenome marks, these methyls I mentioned, and the cell gets young. And what we have just put online is a paper that's admittedly under peer review. So, you know, I still need to get through that process. But what the paper is suggesting is that when you reverse the biological clock, put those loops back to, in place the way they were when we were young, the tissues revive of an old animal. And in that, that paper that we put online, which anyone can, can Google, it's on BioArchive, it's called, they can see that we can restore the vision of an old mouse. Yeah, I thought there were two things that were amazing. One is he, basically, your, your student, right? Basically, um, first off, just to summarize your, your own research, if you deal with all four Yamanaka factors, apparently there's some risk of weird types of cancer. Your student turned off one of them, then then did his his thing, did it on a mouse's eyes where the neurons or where the, where the eye uh, cells were were dead and they came to life again. That was the first experiment, right? And uh, so we did that in collaboration with Jigang He's lab. He deserves credit because this is his lab's work. We supplied the four Yamanaka genes, which we give with an injection to the eye of a mouse. 
Then what he did was he pinched the back of the eye and what happens normally, same as if you break your spine, is that those nerves die and the mouse will never see again. Instead, when we turned on the Yamanaka factors after the damage, those nerves grew back. So uh, uh, theoretically then, you know, you mentioned the spine. Uh, if someone has a spinal injury where the, the nerves or the cells die and so they're paralyzed, could this potentially be useful for, you know, uh, healing, spi- you know, f- permanent spinal injuries? We, we think so, but I have to be careful not to overpromise because mm-hmm. that's, that's a big claim. I think on fresh injuries, it, it's going to be easier than on old injuries. But nevertheless, this, these results that we've seen with the optic nerve give me hope that we can uh, repair aspects of the central nervous system, including the spine. And so what what may, what brings you to the um, longevity conclusion with all of this? So obviously, right. you're, 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 I guess you're, you're reprogramming the cells to have um, these factors. Uh, you're reprogramming these cells to, to not have all the aging that happens in cells. Right. Well, there's two big things here in this in this study. The first is when we damage the body, we see an acceleration of aging which is pretty cool. People didn't know that. But then when we turn on those Yamanaka genes, they strip off those methyl chemicals that have accumulated with the aging of the eye. And then we can read the clock going backwards. The eye actually is younger when we read it. And then all the genes that should have been on in that old eye come back on. And the eye says, ah, Why don't we already do this? No one knew how. But I mean, why don't we just, why don't we evolve to do this? Oh, well, after the age of 40, no one cares if you... uh, end up uh, dying. That's the problem. Right. So so there was basically no use for the, the human body. So basically the most important, the DNA is just around to replicate. And then after right. that, it basically shuts down. That's right. We, our genes get to move on. We do not. Now, these Yamanaka genes, they control us when we're very young. They control embryonic development, but they switch off because we didn't need to regrow new limbs or fix a broken spine for our species to endure. But there are species that do get their limbs lopped off pretty quickly, uh, lizards and some salamanders, they've retained those Yamanaka factors to be able to regrow limbs. Mm. And only now we are learning how to do that ourselves. So, so right, because we have the same genes or, or we share a lot of the genes with these, you know, animals that regrow limbs must be in there somewhere for us to be able to do it. And you're arguing this is the way to do it. Right. So just like, Jonas Salk, when he was testing the polio vaccine, he injected himself. Are you, are you injecting yourself with any, anything for, you know, to trigger Yamanaka factors? Not yet. Not no, yet? <laughs> no. Um, again, I don't take huge risks. And this is still not ready for prime time. Uh, we are genetically modifying cells, so that's very different than taking a supplement. Uh, but I am, I just got off the, the phone today with a group of um, drug developers who are pushing forward to treat glaucoma, which is, I think you and your listeners may know, is uh, damage to the retina caused by pressure yes. in the eye, right? Uh, we've treated glaucoma in those mice and we can restore vision in those mice. We've also tested it in old mice and they get their vision back to a young mouse again. So so um, even if it's approved for glaucoma, you, you, like in humans eventually, as an orphan use, it's all, on, all aging is... Well, that's the strategy, the business strategy. And uh, as you mentioned, I've been entrepreneurial these drugs cannot be prescribed for aging yet because aging isn't yet considered a disease. Right. Though I, I hope that will change with the book. The, so what it means is that we have to develop drugs for a, a small percentage of the population. It could be glaucoma, 
uh, for one drug. Other companies are looking at fatty liver and obesity. But that's how we get the medicines on the market. But then, like you say, doctors can try these medicines on their patients and see what happens under the clinical trial conditions. So how, how many years would you say until we're regularly, you know, dialing back the clock? Oh, well, these drugs are really, really hard. Uh, and they tend to fail more often than they succeed. So I don't want to overpromise. But I can tell you the timeline that if all goes well that we're on. Within two years, we'll know if it works uh, to restore eyesight in people. Uh, and then because we're in a effectiveness trial, you're in an effectiveness trial phase well, three. We'll spend a year doing sa- uh, some safety studies, um, and then we'll we can go straight into a disease. Uh, with the eye, you can actually go a little bit faster than usual. So that's why I can say two years. Maybe we'll be in position to say it might work in a small number of patients. But then you're required to do dozens, if not hundreds, of patients, and that takes a few years. So so we're talking about six years, six to 10 years for that technology of reprogramming to be available for a small part of the population. Um, maybe it's 20 years before we can use this widely if it turns out to be safe. So, so yeah, so this is a random question. If it turns out to be safe, why can't I just say, hey, I'm fine trying it, it's safe anyway. I don't care if, it, if, it, if the trials are not done. Well, you mean you or me or anyone? Anybody. Well, yeah. You this can, is the law. Like you, you, can can't, you can't take the drug until it's gone all the way through phase three, but uh, phase one proves the safetiness. Why can't I just take it after it's proof, proven safe? Well, where are you going to get it? You'd have to come to my lab and do that. And yeah, just sell it. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. No, it's not, it's not possible to use viruses uh, unless it's FDA approved. You fall into two categories. Either you're a drug, you're a supplement. And supplements can be sold if they're generally regarded as safe. Gene therapy is not. And so in terms of medical tourism, is there anywhere I can go to start getting these once it's proved, proved safe? Uh, I, n- definitely not. Uh, it's not available. In fact, it's it's only being done in my lab right now. Um, but who knows? Uh, you know, we can talk uh, hypothetically about other countries using this technology. We just had China last year, or was it early this year, engineer uh, a couple of children uh, to be resistant to HIV. Why not? Or not why not, but but some people might think that it's it's feasible and and quite helpful to engineer a child who could be resistant to aging. And so. Presumably, China doesn't have kind of the ethical concerns we have had historically about using stem cells and, you know, gene editing and all that. For all we know, they're plowing right through and handing this out to every prisoner in Shanghai and said, here, take this. Well, I, I suppose that's feasible. I think some helicopter parents might choose to have the, the, the best children that they can have. But we, we need to have an ethical debate um, and talk about whether we're, we find that acceptable. Now, one of the things that I think is important is, first of all, do no harm. Is it safe? And with gene editing, certainly of, of embryos, we don't know what the long-term effects are on those children. Saving them from HIV protects them from something that's got about a one in a thousand chance of killing them. But if it causes them to have other problems late in life, it's not worth it, right? Right, so presumably they're now tracking these kids to see if there's anything else. They, they, they solve some random thing, HIV, and now they're tracking to see what other side effects might occur over years or decades or whatever. Um, what about gene editing by going, using something like CRISPR to go straight into the gene and take out this, the, the methylation that, that ages the genes? Aha, uh-huh. that's a very good question. So we've, we've my colleague, uh, Juan Carlos Belmonte, 
who is also in this club of reprogrammers, just a few of us, he's developed a way to edit the epigenome and remove those those chemicals and reset the clock that way. So they're going. To, there are going to be other ways. You can use the Yamanaka factors like we do, Belmonte's using epigenome editing. We're all working towards developing uh, pills that we could take instead of gene therapy in and actually truly reverse the age of our bodies. And and my worry has always been, oh, am I going to be too old for this to work? But if, if you're talking about reversal, basically if you're talking about stem cells that are embryonic and can go set be set back to any age, this work well with old people. Well, that's true. We, we only had the technology until recently to wind the clock back a little bit. And the later you started, the harder it became to reverse aging and extend lifespan, uh, in animals at least. This might be a different ballpark. This, I mean, this might be in a completely different world where you can be 80, 90, or 100 and take these therapies and get your eyesight back within a couple of weeks. And that that's what's exciting is that it might, might be too late uh, for some people, but if the technology catches up, maybe it's never too late. Yeah, well, you, I mean, even on the NAD, NAD plus boosters like this NMN, you have anecdotal uh, evidence, or at least it, it seems like an anecdote that one of your students, uh, his mother was taking NMN and starts uh, menstruating again after going into menopause. Well, it's an anecdote. and um, But then you observed it in, I think, mice. As yeah, well. it fits with what we see in, in mice. How, and, and you said it was in mice where all the eggs had already were already gone. Like, what happens? Like, do they create new eggs? We don't know. Uh, we're in new biology. There's not a simple explanation for how a 16-month-old mouse can have children again, have, have offspring. But it happens. It, we've done it many times. And we're trying to figure out how the mouse does that. Have you seen m mice have children after restarting a period? Uh, yeah, we have. And what are those children like? Are they... They're normal. Yeah? Yeah. As far as we can tell, they they look like normal little mice and they, they grow up to be normal mice. They go to school and they, they seem fine. So so uh, I, I have a few more questions on the technology, but I want to also, like you've been kind of straddling the space of, of research and then quickly transferring the research to companies like... Uh, you and several other people, you know, after your research on your initial research on Reservatrol, you started a, a major company that turned that into um, a, a, a pharmaceutical. Uh, is this the way kind of medical research typically kind of gets to the public? Someone researches in the lab, you and a bunch of investors start a company, and boom. That's the way to do it. Um, you need a champion, you need a scientist to, to you know, take, take it by the, the horns. Um, a lot of scientists are either afraid or can't be bothered to start a company. Uh, I was very lucky that I was trained in, in entrepreneurial activities and in starting companies when I was in my early 30s by some of the best in Boston who started multi-billion dollar companies, sat on the board, took it public, sold it. Uh, and that was a great start. And I've continued to do that ever since uh, and try different business models, try different approaches, help other scientists commercialize their work. But that is how it's done. You make an invention, the university owns that invention. Then you start a company with colleagues, you raise the capital, go back to the university and pay for your invention to the university. And are they happy to, like, do they get stuck? Are they happy to sell the invention back to you? Yeah, they, they, they are actually. That's one of the main ways they make revenue. Of course, they're hoping for the big payoff. If there's a drug, then it can support this. Because they'll take stock in the company as well. A little bit, typically. Yeah. 
So, so what what companies like do you, you, you we meant you mentioned earlier you're involved in a bunch of different companies. What what are some of those that you're involved with now? Uh, well, so that there are a bunch of them. Uh, there, there's a group of companies that tackles infectious diseases um, and cancer uh, and even fixing wounds of old people. That's a, a group of um, of companies that I, I have invested in and support. Uh, there's another group of companies that focuses only on aging um, and they tackle uh, many of the hallmarks of aging that we discussed. And uh, they're at various stages. Some are in clinical trials with ones with an NAD booster in Boston. Um, others are still in an animal preclinical stage. You, you should have you considered starting like a, a hedge fund so you can raise, you know, lots of money to kind of shepherd these companies through their various stages, you know, like drug trials, marketing, and so on. Have you considered like raising a hundred million, a billion? Cause you have a track record of success. I mean, the, the yeah. reserve control company sold to uh, GSK for $720 million. So that's, that's pretty good. I was great for the investors. It wasn't as great for the patients uh, that that program um, is is now lying in wait. But but the idea itself that, again, as you mentioned in the book, that reserve that a cell or a molecule can affect these sirtuins for the first time, that allowed you to move on to the NAD plus boosters and so on. Well, it did. And also what's not generally known because GSK doesn't broadcast it is that they did clinical trials with the molecules that we developed and they, they looked like they worked. In a phase two study, they used it for an, an inflammatory disease called psoriasis. Uh, but, you know, all companies have different priorities. And so they, they went on with something else. Uh, that said, the science has been validated. Uh, it was really controversial. And, and in my career, ups and downs and times I couldn't get out of bed. But well, well, Why is that? Because, we're, I mean, once you had people shouting on TV, hey, Reservatrol is the way to go. Did you find your share of trolls and other doctors and all sorts of populations that were kind of trashing you or what, what happened? Well, I, I don't mind being trashed, but when my colleagues, my scientific colleagues, um, and even Pfizer at the, at the time, the largest pharmaceutical company said that I was wrong about my science, that, that hurt. Um, what I was saying was that resveratrol activates the sirtuin protecting enzymes. And the counter argument was, no, they don't. And so I spent a decade, uh, went back to the drawing board while well, went back to the bench and did even better science to test whether that's true or not. Uh, and the good news is that I prevailed. Um, well, why couldn't you get out of bed on some of those days? Well, it's incredibly depressing that to, to be criticized for something that you think you're doing your best, you're trying to help humanity, you've sacrificed everything, you've left your country. I barely saw my parents for most of my life. I work like crazy. And then to have someone to say, you know, you're wrong and, uh, and you're an idiot, basically. Uh, I felt just for a week that that humanity was ungrateful and I, I, I'm not going to do this anymore. And Well, it reminds me of the guy who um, first figured out, you know, how germ theory affects, you know, this was in the 1800s. He, you know, they had a, a, a maternity clinic and next to a, a morgue or whatever. So the same doctors would go from delivering babies to dealing with dead people, not realizing that they needed to wash their hands. Yeah, Lister. This, this yeah. one guy said, oh no, you need to wash your hands and he proved it. But still, all ninety nine point nine percent of doctors trashed him. He ended up in a mental hospital. I don't blame him. It, it's it really it, it hurts when this happens, and especially if you're doing it for good reasons. You know, I'm not trying to make any money. I invest and give away 
most of what we get, uh, what we earn. It, really, we're trying to help the world. And, and here's the other thing, James, that hurt. We had data in my lab that we hadn't published that said very likely, if not certainly, it was right. So I knew in my heart that we were going to prevail, but but there was this criticism. And as much as I tried to defend myself, it made it worse. Uh, when I said, oh, I'm not sure what Pfizer's doing, but it doesn't match what we've done, the trolls on the internet said, who's Sinclair telling Pfizer they don't know what they're doing? Who is this schmo? That hurt too. Yeah, and so so how did you personally, what tools did you use personally to deal with that? Oh, well, um, I'm a very sensitive guy, actually. I, get, I don't have a thick skin. Uh, I should. But what I did was I went back to work. That's what make, gives, gives me pleasure, discovering things. Um, did you have trouble getting funding with, with oh, so yeah, much? Oh, yeah, my funding dried up. Yeah, I, I figured I was not going to have a lab anymore. My career was over. My lab was a thriving 20-something group of PhDs and postdocs. It went down to four people. Um, I had people in my own lab say, Sinclair, you're full of crap. Uh, you know, that really hurts when the people you're training turn on you. Um, but there was, there was one guy who I want to credit with, with saving everything, Basil Hubbard. He's now a professor in Canada. He uh, said, you know what? Screw the naysayers. Let's just look at the data. And he looked at the data. I looked at the data and we said, that doesn't make sense. There's something going on here that we have to figure out. And uh, we dug in and we, we, we went left, we went right, we hit brick walls. But finally, we broke through and we figured out what was going on. And we could explain the discrepancy of what Pfizer was seeing, what we were seeing. And it turned out we were right in the end. Did Pfizer ever say, oh, sorry? No, they did not. And I'm sure they never will. And so, okay, so now your companies are doing everything from, you know, healing specific diseases or, or injuries to anti-aging to, you know, we talked earlier about uh, kind of big data analysis of, you know, the three-dimensional genome, which seems extremely difficult. Like, how do you go about analyzing, you know, basically how all these proteins and genes are, you know, three-dimensionally placed to each other? It seems like there's trillions of possibilities. How do you go about analyzing that? Uh, well, there's new technology. Um, as, as we head into the genomic world, the genomic era, um, the century of biology, we are now able to do things that were impossible just two years ago uh, for, um, instead of a billion dollars, we can do it for a couple of hundred. The kind of technologies that I'm developing and with some of the companies that I've spun out um, and, and invest in are developing one-shot tests that tell you within each of the cells that you analyze, not just what the, what the one-dimensional architecture of the genome is, we know how to do that. 23andMe does that. But what happens in three dimensions? What are those chemical marks that tell us how old we are? What are those loops? We can now see that if there's a loop of DNA, we can now see that these ends of the loop are touching each other. It's called a TAD. And we can measure those very quickly, very cheaply. And with these tools, within just a couple of days, and at this point, maybe a few thousand dollars, you can have not just a one-dimensional map of a tissue, but a three-dimensional, eventually a four-dimensional map of a tissue for very little money. And that'll tell us way more than we can get just by measuring those mutations that we currently measure. But my worry is if it's, if it's so, if, it, if it's no longer linear, 
the complications increase like literally a trillion fold because you have exponential number of possibilities. So you have to look at so many genomes to get some understanding of what's the average, you know, and what's a deviation from the average. Like, how do you, how would you do that? Well, that that's very perceptive. And, and what's the what's the outcome? What are the out? What's the outcome you hope for? Well, okay. So we we, we faced this problem a few years ago uh, in my lab as well as many others that we were we had so much data, uh, even for a single point in the genome, uh, it's n dimensional. It can go for a hundred different dimensions. How do you store that information? And when we started uh, with the human genome, we called it the reference genome, and we use math, pretty simple math, to match someone's. If I take your genome, I can match you to the original one. But that's just, that's one dimension. That's pretty right. easy. So that's basically exactly how speech recognition works. I know what the word, I, ha I have all sorts of models of what the word yes looks like. And then when I speak, I could statistically match it with a database of words. And oh, I just said yes, it matches that right. in the database. But now you can't have a database really of all these, exactly. it's too big. Well, so we just learned last week that uh, we're likely to be awarded a patent for putting the genome on a graph rather than a linear database. And graph analytics is the way to go for all these complicated data sets. And then how many genomes do you think you would need to have of like real people so that you can really do proper analysis on them? Because oh, I well, imagine in China, yeah. by the way, the reason I'm asking this is China has no ethical qualms about just, hey, two, uh, two billion people, give us all your genomes. It's ours now. Because there's no privacy issues there. Yeah. Well, some countries like uh, the UK are, have, um, are deciphering millions of their people's popula of their the genomes of the population. In the US, we are also doing it. Uh, already 23andMe has a million or whatever genomes. So it's, it's coming. People are either paying for it or the government is insisting. Uh, in China, they're, they're, like you say, they're doing over a billion genomes. They'll have eventually. When you get up to those numbers, and I think the minimum... You know, it's a spectrum, but probably a minimum you need is, is a few thousand genomes. It's better if you have 10,000. It's better if, if you have a million. When you get up into those numbers and you, you're not just looking at the code of the, the, the DNA, you're looking at the software on top of that, we're going to learn so much why a cancer cell in your body sits there for 20 years and a cancer cell in my body might multiply uncontrollably. That's the kind of information that we currently lack, but we're building that database right now across the world. So you're basically hoping... To build, uh, to have a way of of, of uh, analyzing these um, graphs of these genomes, and then uh, knowing the sort of outcomes of the humans who supply those genomes, you'll be able to kind of figure out which loops do which, which you know when they connect, when they don't connect, or when they have distance from each other. But that that of course will require very sophisticated analysis. I'm going to be curious how you ultimately cross that bridge, but. The, the, the end result is a lot more information about just any kind of disease or oh, sure. maybe even personality factors. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. And that that's sometimes uh, or probably why we don't have such a great understanding of how our genes control our lifespan or in, and our health because there's all this other regulation. I mean, if you look at a computer, how are you going to figure out what's going on unless you also look at the software? You've got to look at the software and that's what we're doing. Um, I was just yesterday for a number of hours on the call uh, with a company called Dovetail Genomics, another company that I shepherd and have invested in. They are, they're the ones that can take your tissue and show you the three dimensions. And what they're doing is collaborating with me to look at how that changes over time during aging 
and we're going to test what happens when you reprogram the cell to be young again, exactly see how those loops go back to being young again. And then we can figure out how the cell does it. Right now, we're not really even sure how it's possible that a cell has the information to reset. Where is that backup copy of the epigenome? We don't know where it's stored at all. We've got to find that. Yes. Is it, what would you say is what you're, it sound, that sounds super exciting. Would you say this is what you're most excited about or maybe some of these earlier things like the research on the Yamanaka factors or more research on the NAD plus boosters? Um, well, I, I get excited about a lot, but the, the, the most exciting thing for me, well, the most challenging thing for me, which is most exciting, is the Yamanaka factors tell us that there is a backup copy of youthfulness and we can access it with those genes. But where are those genes going to get that information? Where's that backup drive? That is the most important thing I think that I can do in the next few years is find that. And it goes back to information theory. Claude Shannon, who developed basically this from scratch, he said you need a backup copy of any signal, uh, whether it's radio, and now we have the internet. We always store a backup copy. Our bodies are like that. We've just discovered there's a backup copy of the epigenome. We don't know where that is residing, and I'm looking for it right now. So, again, why don't, you know, it seems like a great idea for you to, well, well. so I'm going to ask like a couple of dumb questions. First off, do you have like billionaires calling you every day and saying, look, I'm, I'm 80 years old. I finally made my billion, but I want to enjoy it. I'm about to die and I just made the billion. Just, just start injecting me today. <laughs> not as, not as many as you might think. Um, but, but there's only so many billionaires. So I would say like 10 a year. <laughs> no. No, nothing like that. What I think is is going on is that most people don't believe it. It sounds too good to be true. And I'm hoping with the book and, and with the papers we've published and my field, which is now at the forefront of biology, that not just they, but the world realizes that this is this is here, this is coming, yeah. uh, and it's doable. And again, I think the, 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 the great thing in the book too, not, among many things, I mean, in the book, you explain all these technologies, you really identify the, the many factors involved in, or the several factors involved in aging and how each one could be potentially corrected and in some ways already corrected. But I think um, what was exciting for me was that it doesn't matter that I'm not a baby, <laughs> that I'm you know over 50 and could potentially start thinking about these things as long as I stay healthy now so that I'm alive as the technologies develop. Right. I didn't realize you were over 50. Yeah. Well, I have a good biological age, perhaps. <laughs> Fantastic. We, we'll have to measure you. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that is the hope that, um, the, and the promise of this research is that it's not going to be too late for our generation. I, I think we're about the same age. Uh, I, I was saying that we're probably the last generation to live the natural human lifespan and that our children and their children will see great gains in health and longevity, the same way we look back at our great-grandparents and think, God forbid. So so, so here's a question I didn't see in, in your book, but maybe you have an answer. What's the deal with like uh, fecal transplants and longevity? So the idea of um, taking bacteria from someone young, say, and transplanting it into your bacteria. Well, that, that science is very early and that anyone who says that it works is, is full of it. But, now, but, but it, it works in mice. That, so we, we know that, it seems. Uh a little bit. Uh, it's been done mostly in fish, actually, um, but that does seem to work. Now, um, I think it's possible that that one day people will get youthful microbiomes installed. That makes sense to me. Um, I haven't discussed it a lot just because 
Uh, I think it's earlier than a lot of uh, of this other science that came before. But I, I, I like it. I think that why, why not restore the age of our bodies and our cohabiting microorganisms? There's a lot of them in our bodies. They change as we get older. Um, actually, just going back to the yogurt that I have, um, that's not just regular yogurt. That's yogurt that I make that has the right combination that I think keeps my microbiome young. So it has like a lot of probiotics and... Yeah, and the bacterial species are very beneficial. They're not your usual yogurt species. So so, so uh, again, you should start like a hedge fund or a private equity fund, or at least put all your companies, start a syndicate on AngelList, put all your companies there. People could then follow you into each investment as you invest and you get a fee off of all of that. Well, yeah, um, you, you've been in finance. L let's do it. <laughs> all right, well... The all right, we'll we'll save that conversation. <laughs> and um, I had I had I had another stupid question, which is my specialty. But okay, so just to just to just to summarize, here's what I'm going to do because I'm going to go on your routine too. There's the you describe it specifically on page 304 of your book, but there's the NMN uh, that you take, which is the NAD plus booster. You also take Reservatrol. Uh, you take these vitamins that you describe in the book. You take aspirin. Uh, you take the steps, so you, you're exercising, and then you do a little bit of weightlifting on the weekends. Uh, you uh, metformin. Uh, oh, you, yeah, you do the one gram of uh, metformin, which you have to get a prescription for, and it's, it's. I guess your doctor allows for an orphan use because you're not taking it for type two diabetes, which seems to be the only thing it can be officially prescribed for. Right, but but it may sound strange to listeners and and viewers, but. Uh, probably a third of my colleagues are taking metformin right now and they don't have diabetes. Yeah. And, uh, I actually, before I came here, I spoke to a doctor about it and she told me, Oh, no problem. Well, I'll prescribe it if you want. Talk, talk to the guy first and find out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the data is compelling. And, uh, the other thing is that it, it's over the counter in a lot of countries cause it's so relatively safe. So I think that's low risk. But, uh, what's, what's great about the, the world we live in is this isn't, we're actually, we're living in the future, right? If I told you 20 years ago that you, your doctor could give you a drug that might slow your aging, you'd say, yeah, right. But it's here right now. And and in terms of lifestyle, you, you don't mention sleep at all in the book. Uh, do you find that to be a factor or not really a factor? You say you sleep, I think, six to seven hours a, a night, but yeah. a lot of books about sleep and, and aging and so on recommend eight hours, but they do say it differs per person. Right. Well, that, there's a, a few reasons I didn't put a lot in. One is that there are really good books on this. Sachin Panda, my colleague, wrote a great one. The other, more I think, more important reason for, for uh, readers is that I don't want to stress people out about sleep. Um, there are these books that people have read, and they've said, David, I can't sleep anymore because I'm so worried about getting sleep. Uh, I, I say how I try to relax. Um, I, I try to avoid blue light of the screens. That really helps. Um, and I also don't eat or drink too close to bedtime. And and how, uh, skipping around, how much do you think psychological stress is related to inflammation in the body? Well, it's very important. It's You want to lower your inflammation, no matter what. The, the inflammation is one of the biggest causes of the aging process. Uh, when I was super stressed out in my 30s and 40s, uh, I was certainly aging faster than I am now. Um, and is there a medical way that you would recommend reducing inflammation or is it just a matter of just de-stressing and... Well, there, there might be. I mean, there, there are these uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories that, that some people take for, for back pain, whatever. I don't do that. Um, I don't um, have an issue. 
The aspirin is helpful, I think, um, reducing overall inflammation in my body. Um, That's what I do. What I do, though, is I've learned over the last 30 years uh, from my 20s how to overcome psychological stress. Haven't you? Yeah, it's definitely different. Like now, things that I've encountered at 40, when I encountered them at 50, I can say to myself, I can deal with this. I know how to deal with this. You sort of, there is a sort of benefit to aging, which is a, a tiny bit of wisdom on some of these things that used to be very stressful. Yeah. Although, so the adage that I always remember when I'm stressing out is nothing seems as good as you think and nothing seems as bad as you think. And I've, I've found that to be true throughout my life. Yeah, I, I have a similar one, which is, uh, I'll figure this out. <laughs> I just repeat to myself, I'll figure this out. Now, um, final question, but I do want to say, this is a book I'm going to read and reread and study and, and keep track of your career to see what the latest things you're always doing. But the, the book is Lifespan, The Revolutionary, Revolutionary Science of Why We Age and Why We Don't Have to by David Sinclair. And it's just an amazing book. I, 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 I have almost every other page bookmarked here. Uh, but uh, final question is, is there anything I can be doing on the fringe? You say you don't take risk. I'm, all, I'm a little okay with risk. What should I, if I wanted to take risk, what, what could I do to, to fool around with this stuff? All right. Uh, and just in full disclosure, because I'm, I'm a professor, uh, I'm not recommending, I'm not condoning, I'm not qualified to make recommendations. Okay, you, you got that? As far as you know, we're not even recording. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, there's, uh, so the third group of, of longevity genes is this mTOR. And that's the one that measures how many amino acids you're eating. And there's a drug that, that works to uh, extend lifespan of animals dramatically and seems to reverse some aspects of aging in people. The drug is called rapamycin. The problem is that in high doses, it knocks out your immune system and it's used to treat um, uh, organ rejection. Right, so so um, so rapamycin has this amazing history. It's found on Easter Island of all places, this amazing uh, anti-aging drug. And it, and it affects the... Um, how quick, from what I understand, it affects how quickly these telomeres shrink. And uh, I think the problem is, is that when you're older, you kind of need those telomeres to be smaller so you don't get cancer. So is there a problem that if you live longer because of this drug, you could be susceptible to more cancers? Doesn't seem to be. Uh, In many studies, if anything, it protects against cancer and diabetes. this mTOR is interesting because it also turns on other defenses these hallmark, against, against these hallmarks. One of the, the big things that it does is it digests proteins. Remember we were saying that these accumulated old proteins, you want to turn that on. So rapamycin will simulate fasting, uh, fasting if you're American, and it will digest those. And so rapamycin is great for that. It even can boost the immune system with small uh, irregular doses. And if you want to be on the fringe... You can look it up. You can find a doctor that might prescribe you low-dose um, intermittent rapamycin. What does it mean by intermittent? Like once a month, once every three days? So no one knows that uh, the answer to what's optimal. Uh, what would I'm, you I'm, do? I'm not doing it. <laughs> what would you do if you were doing it? What would I do? I, again, full disclosure, uh, I'm not saying do it. But uh, if you took it for just a, a few days uh, and then let your body rest for a couple of weeks, 
uh, similar to how you do uh, a three-day fast. Think of it like that. All right. Well, David Sinclair, author of Lifespan, thank you for so, so much for coming on the show. We're, uh, tomorrow we're going to start a hedge fund and all sorts of other things. So looking forward to having you on the show again where we could brag about how we're 20 years old again. <laughs> and thanks so much for coming on. As soon as I got the book, I contacted you, you know this, and we, and we arranged to have you on the show. I'm so glad you, you came. Oh, thanks for having me on. It was awesome. Thanks, David.